Hello, I'm Mercedes Stevenson, and you're listening to The West Block. The train's not stopping. The train's not stopping. We're working on it. We're working on it. The Canadian government has to come to a, an agreement with the Wasuntin chiefs, and that's where the pressure should be. I'm here to break reaffirm that I'm very interested in accelerating that work on, on, on rights and title. Anxiety mounts over the spread of COVID-19. The global risk is very high. If people are going in a zone in an area in the country, which we already know there is an issue, uh, people should really think twice. After weeks of railroad and port blockades across the country in support of the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs, tensions escalated last week, even protesters facing off with a train. This has all come at a cost to the economy, with thousands of layoffs and many businesses hurting. And within the Indigenous community, it has opened up deep divisions. Joining me now to discuss this is Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland, who also has the Intergovernmental Affairs file. So many of these falling under problems that you've been put in to fix. But many Canadians are saying they feel like this is such a difficult time for the country. And some are saying they feel that the country is pulling apart at the seams. What do you say to those Canadians who look and say the economy is in trouble? We have COVID-19. We have blockades and can't move our gear. Why isn't the government doing more for us? Well, you know, Mercedes, I think it's a really good question. And I would start by saying to those Canadians, it is a difficult time. And I absolutely acknowledge and embrace a federal government responsibility for being a leader in that work. And you know what? I think it's what Canadians want. I think that Canadians really understand how great Canada is, that we have something really, really special here. The tensions and the strains are absolutely real. And now is the time for all of us to put our shoulder to the wheel, to knit our country together and to face up to the very real challenges, the very real differences across our country, within our country, and to find a consensus on the hard issues. But is allowing weeks of blockades to go on and the millions of dollars that has drained from the economy, is that leadership by the federal government? You know what is leadership by the federal government? Was the prime minister saying a week ago the blockades must come down and the law must be upheld. That was a crucial moment. It was essential for him to say that. And since then, what we have been seeing is progress, by no means complete, but real progress in getting the blockades dismantled. And I do want to be very clear with Canadians that you know, protest is an absolute and essential democratic right. I think all of us as Canadians are really proud that we live in a democracy where we can do that. But protest does not and cannot include the right to stop Canadians from going about their business, from doing their jobs, from living their lives. Then why Our wasn't government, your government is tougher on very that? clear about that. 
tech frontier, as you know, you've spent a lot of time out west. You are a Westerner. It was symbolic. Well, I'm an MP for University of Rosedale, but, <laughs> but I love Alberta. I am a grateful daughter of like Alberta. Me. And, and you know the reaction out there because you hear it even, I'm sure, just from friends and family, that this was really a symbolic project. And the CEO of tech said, look, you simply cannot get natural resource projects approved in this political environment. Your government is in part responsible for that political environment. What are you going to do to help Albertans in terms of concrete measures now that tech is no longer an option? Tech is a private sector company, and tech's decision to withdraw was a decision by that company. But it's your I government's that, decision that, if you're going to do something to help Albertans financially at this point. Well, so you've asked a number of questions, and I want to talk about, I, I, I very much agree there is a role for the federal government in the path forward, and I'd like to talk about that, because I think that Don Lindsay wrote a very wise letter explaining the company's decision to withdraw. And what he pointed to was the lack today of a national consensus on how we proceed on the two things that I believe the overwhelming majority of Canadians support, very much including Albertans, which is that we do need ambitious action on climate change. We all know that climate change is a pressing issue. And by the way, I very much believe that Albertans understand that, including the leadership of the province of Alberta. At the same time, we need a strong economy. And Canada is lucky to have a strong natural resource sector, including a strong oil and gas sector, which employs financial? hundreds. Because uh, a lot of people uh, in the oil and Mercedes, gas sector I, think I, it's I, over Mercedes, right now. I will get to that. But I think there is something even more important that I would like to take this opportunity to talk about, which is, so let me just finish the point about the oil and gas sector, because I think it's important for Canadians to hear it. So I do want to be very clear that our government recognizes the importance of the oil and gas sector, its value to the Canadian economy, the fact that this is a sector that creates hundreds of thousands of high-paying jobs across the country, including a lot of great blue-collar jobs. We recognize that. We value that. What I think we need to do now is have a very urgent, very serious conversation between the federal government, the provincial government, the oil sector, and indeed, actually, the whole country talking about how do we achieve both of these objectives. And the good news, from my perspective, is I believe the oil sector in particular, energy CEOs, are absolutely there. We are seeing the leaders of some of Canada's leading oil companies. I spoke to one just in the past 48 hours, but I won't name the person because the person asked me not to name them. And I spoke to several this week. Um, they are there. They understand, frankly, because of their own convictions, because of their own conversations with their own children, and also because of what the global investment community is demanding. They understand that they need to act on climate change. A lot of Canadian companies are making net zero by 2050 commitments, and they understand that it is work that we need to do together. It is work we, the oil sector, is already doing. It is work that I really believe the brilliant scientists and innovators in Canada, particularly in Western Canada in this area, are totally well equipped to do. And what I think we need to do now, I think we need to treat tech's withdrawal 
as a wake-up call for our country. And we need to say, now is the time to do that hard work, to actually face up to the fact that it is a challenge. It's a real challenge to reconcile ambitious action on climate change and a strong economy and a strong oil and gas sector, but we can do it. And I think now is the moment for us to do that work, to have that consensus, to get to that national agreement. And when we do that, we will have no trouble at all getting big projects built in Canada, which is what we need to do. Minister Freeland, thank you so much for joining us. Okay, thank you for letting me say that, Mercedes. I really, really believe it. <laughs> More than 50 countries are now reporting cases of COVID-19 as the battle to contain the virus intensifies. Here in North America, many schools are preparing for a break this month, leaving parents to question the risks of that much-desired vacation. Have we reached the tipping point for coronavirus, and can it be stopped? Joining me now is Dr. Marcos Espinal, the Director of the Department of Communicable Diseases and Environmental Determinants of Health at the Pan-American Health Organization. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us, Dr. Espinal. My pleasure. Each week we are hearing about more and more cases and countries reporting COVID-19 now within their borders. A lot of people are wondering, at what point does this meet the criteria to become a pandemic? Well, that, that is a very important question, and there is a fine line that uh, uh, we could cross any time. Um, um, the, 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 the pandemic issue, uh, it has pros and cons, because... Um, the word pandemic can create also fear, stigma, and can also suggest that uh, the international community cannot contain this virus. On the other hand, uh, we, we firmly believe that uh, it is a pandemic when we start observing sustained transmission in the communities. We have seen that in three countries so far, Italy, uh, South Korea, um, and Iran. So um, uh, we are watching this critically. And how prepared do you think we are here in Canada, the United States, and the Americas for this virus? So the health systems are really, really not uh, homogeneous in terms of, of preparation. So uh, there are stronger health systems, uh, others are weaker. Uh, Canada and the United States uh, has very strong health systems. Uh, um, I think Canada it has done very well. Canada also has a lot of experience on the past coronavirus like SARS and 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 and, and I think Canada has been able to to handle the cases that have arrived um, uh, related to China very well. So far, uh, the cases we've had coming into Canada have been people who have been in contact uh, with somebody who had contact with someone in China, a spouse of somebody who had it. But when you really start to worry is when you start to see community transmission, that transmission of the disease to people who have not been or had a close relationship with someone who is considered to be high risk. That is correct. And that is the key issue for, for calling it a pandemic uh, uh, event. Uh, 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 we don't rule out that it's going to be called like that, you know. Um, we also don't rule out, like, for instance, in China, cases are declining, that it could come back. But as the director general was saying a few days ago, a couple of days ago, uh, the organization still think that it can be contained. 
What about places like Africa, where there is now a case in Nigeria, where there is not the kind of health care system that European and North American and many Latin American countries have? Once it reaches there, does it become much harder to contain it? There is no doubt that Nigeria will be committed to try to contain these. Uh, we have an office in, uh, for the whole of Africa, and, and, and certainly we're working with them. But I agree with you, there are, there are several countries there that where the health systems are, are weak and they need to be strengthened. Uh, even in the United States, in California, they were talking about a shortage of testing kits. Are you concerned about whether or not even countries like Canada and the U.S. are really prepared for this to come and for the healthcare system to have to deal with it? One thing is containment, and the other thing is mitigation. And mitigation measures can be implemented when we have outbreaks or, or community transmission. A lot of Canadian families are getting ready to go on their March break. They tend to go away. People travel. They fly. They go to places where there's lots of people, like theme parks. You know, should Canadian families be concerned about that? And should be people be rethinking, potentially, their plans for the break or just carry on? Well, um, um, that's an important question. I think the, the key issue is to watch how this evolve and make the best decision close to the vacation or so. I mean, uh, some countries are already um, uh, recommending uh, uh, cancelling uh, mass gathering events. So, uh, but uh, it depends on, uh, on the country itself. You know, each country within their boundaries can recommend uh, what, what they consider is good for their citizens. Uh, one thing is, is, is clear that is there is community transmission in a place, uh, and, you know, it's important to avoid that place, uh, I mean, uh, for the time being. But, but if the vacation is in two months or so, uh, I recommend watch and, 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 and see how this evolves. Uh, if they see more cases coming into the vacation uh, uh, or holiday place, then it would be recommended, uh, it would be better to, to postpone that traveling because it, uh, protecting life is more important than being on holiday. So for people at home watching, what should they be doing to protect themselves, both from uh, preventing getting the virus, but also dealing with a situation where there is an outbreak and things could change in terms of ability to get out of the house or use public transit or go shopping? I think the important issue is not to create panic. The, the, the purchase of extra supplies is related to what I said earlier. If uh, an influx of cases arrive in Canada, the, the authorities need to be prepared with stocks of supplies, uh, protection equipment and so on. Uh, but they're not saying this is because the, uh, the risk is, is high or low. I think this is called preparedness. I mean, to make sure they have the, the, the equipment needed and the supplies needed to, to, to face a major influx of, of cases. I think the issue of low risk versus high risk is also depend on, on the health system of the, of the country. But nobody can control the, the a virus like this. Nobody can predict, I'm sorry, what is going to happen. Uh, uh, but we can also say that it's going to be Armageddon or something like that. I think countries are preparing, and Canada is one of them. And, 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 and we fully uh, uh, are confident that Canada is able to do a good preparation for, for, for facing cases of coronavirus, like they have done already so far. Thank you very much, doctor. Thank you.
Weeks of indigenous land rights protests in support of the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs opposing a natural gas project in B.C. have hit the economy hard and opened divisions across Canada. Many Indigenous leaders are calling on the government to address their land rights disputes. The Mohawks at Ganawage in Quebec were on the front lines at Solidarity Blockades. Joining me now from Ganawage is Grand Chief Joe Norton of the Ganawage Mohawk Council. Thank you for making time for us, Chief. My pleasure. Uh, Grand Chief, these barricades have been erected across Canada for weeks, and people say it seems like an extreme way to go, like it is so drastic in terms of cutting off access, uh, in terms of damaging the economy, but it seems to be something that you believe is necessary. Why do you believe you have to have barricades and these kinds of protests that are actually shutting down freedom, freedom of movement and the economy to be effective? Well, it was nothing that was planned in advance. Um, people, especially like in the community here of Ganawage, it was a spontaneous reaction to images that the people here in the community saw on the screen with the RCMP moving in and uh, arresting people and uh, carting them away at gunpoint. It's not the first time we've seen things like that. And we saw similar things happening way back uh, 30 years ago in 1990. So there was immediate, an immediate reaction to support. And I'm not saying we'll take uh, credit for the rest of the country jumping in, but certainly uh, when, when it, it, it was like a, I don't know, a domino effect, next thing you know, right across the country, people were doing similar things, both native and non-native also, too. So what is, I guess, the benchmark for you to take the barricades down and beyond that, for the barricades to potentially go back up again? It's, uh, it's a very difficult situation in terms of this present, situ this present circumstances because of the fact that, uh, you know, a couple of thousand miles away on the other side of the West Coast, there are discussions and negotiations taking place uh, you know, just starting recently, and we have no control over that. But our um, our commitment given to continue to support until such time as the uh, Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs are uh, are satisfied, and request that we we stand down, not only us but across the rest of the country, is something uh, that commitment that we've given, and we're hoping it, that'll happen. You know. 24, 48 hours over the weekend, and that we'll be able to uh, uh, term, uh, return to as normal a life as we can. And um, hopefully for the future, there will be a process that'll be put in place that won't require these kinds of things, and won't require Canada to use uh, use of force uh, through the courts, through law enforcement, and all those kinds of things, and that our own people will not be put in a, in a position where they have to protest, they have to block highways, bridges, and all those sorts of things. Uh, so a fair and honest, uh, peaceful way of, of settling matters is what I'm striving for. We floated a couple of ideas now about what that can look like in the future, in the very near future, and there's been some uh, reciprocation by Canada on those so what, ideas. What do those ideas look like? 
Well, I don't want to go into too much detail because uh, it's still like unofficial kinds of uh, discussions that have been had. But immediately, I mean, right at this point, um, the Mohawk Council of Ganawage has, uh, has talked about the possibilities of uh, sending a, a, a delegation of our police officers, the peacekeepers, to Wet'suwet'en territory to help in, um, in uh, policing matters, you know, for a short time period, of course. Uh, and there's, uh, there's something official that's coming out quite soon uh, to that effect. And, you know, you're getting a scoop on this firsthand. <laughs> well, we like scoops. So that would be indigenous policing by another indigenous police force replacing the RCMP at Wet'suwet'en. Yes, or either that or in conjunction with the RCMP. I don't know what that would look like. I mean, uh, Canada and the, and the province of B.C. have to, have to uh, acknowledge that and work with it. Uh, because there's, there's too many stories that are going back and forth in terms of the, uh, the term was used, the brutality of the RCMP on, on Wet'suwet'en people. So, and then there's, of course, the, the, the response to that is, no, 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 it's, it's uh, minor patrols, regular things are, are taking place. So maybe it's good to have somebody else, another eyes on the ground type of uh, uh, indigenous police force to, uh, to be able to be there to help calm things down. Grand Chief, what did you think of what was happening with the Mohawk at Tyendinaga? Because there was people putting tires on fire on the tracks, a vehicle on fire on the tracks, uh, throwing things at passing trains. Does that concern you that that kind of activity will force the hands of police or that it undermines support for your movement? That is not something that I would condone because it's very dangerous, very dangerous to uh, the individuals themselves. And we hope that, would, uh, that that would not continue. One last question for you, Grand Chief. Premier Legault has said that your territory is heavily armed with firearms, including AK-47s. Is that true? Well, I don't know if that's to appease, um, uh, appease the, uh, the National Assembly. So if uh, Legault is beating the drum, then, you know, he's sadly mistaken in it. You know, and it's, it's a pity. It is a pity that a provincial leader has to stand up and say those kinds of things. I, for one, am an advocate of peace. But, sir, is, is what he said true? No, it is not true. Totally false. Okay. Grand Chief, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks for joining us. For the West Block, I'm Mercedes Stevenson. We'll see you right here next week.